Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here, and they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. So do be sure to check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners can save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. All right. Thank you again, Books of Discovery. And good day, Mr. Lukak. Good to see you again. It's been, uh, we've been sort of off track for a while here doing some solo things. I did some and you did it's some. It's been a while since we've been together on the yeah. mic, Whitney. Good to I see you. I missed you. Indeed. Oh, nice. <laughs> Likewise. I've been looking forward to this conversation today Yeah, a lot. All right. Good. What is the conversation today? I wanted your ideas and just to mull over my ideas about sciatica, sciatic pain. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, it's a, you know, it's one of our most popular courses in my series, and I'm teaching a live stream one day, which I'll go ahead and put a plug in for that's August 12th, 2022, or you can get it later by recording. And uh, like our other sponsors, you can save 15% if you enter thinking at checkout, if you want to go look at that on our site, advancedtrainings.com, we'll put that in the show notes, but enough of that advertisement. Oh, I no, wait, really... not quite enough. Tell me, really? tell me more about this course. So what are you doing oh. on the live stream? This is, um, you are doing this as a broadcast for people all over, right? Yeah, it's basically, I'm going to be in Portland, Oregon, teaching a one day hands-on workshop complete okay. with lectures and everything. And then we just have a couple of Zoom feeds where people can see different angles of the demonstrations I'm giving. And we'll, there will be actually people that are practicing on Zoom and we'll be giving them feedback. So we're teaching both Zoom and in-person simultaneously. Awesome. We did that. Yeah, we did that last year for a class and it was really fun. We had people from all over the world. And it's it's you know, it's not the same as being there in person, but it was surprisingly yeah. effective and satisfying too. Second best. Yeah. That's right. to, to be there with everybody. So yeah, all right. That sounds cool. Yeah. And then I should also mention that we do have a handout for our conversation today. I got a couple things I'm going to put in there. You said you had some stuff yeah. and we'll pull it together after we record and get it up there on our websites. So we can go download that free PDF if you want. Sounds great. Sounds like a plan. So anyway, what what is sciatica, Whitney? Well, this is a good question because certainly if you look at any of the stuff that's been written about it, this is one of the places where there starts to be confusion. This is, uh, you know, uh, just to put one other plug while we're talking about terminology issues here. Mm. Um, are you aware? Uh, well, actually, you and I talked about this. Have, did you see any of the, the stuff that came out of the recent um, International Consortium of Manual Therapists uh, event? They had a, a virtual event uh, was going to be I live. Remember. They went to, yep. I remember the event. event. Yeah. What came out of it? What, what well, are you one of the of? big things that came out of that was a discussion about terminology, about the mm. need for consistent terminology across manual therapy professions. And that's just yeah. um, something that uh, it's great to see some work being done on this and some some things to move uh, stuff in certain directions, because this is a perfect example of when you have a term mm-hmm. that is not um, agreed upon and is not accurately defined there. It's open to all kinds of different interpretations by different people. And the term sciatica um, gets bandied about quite a bit, especially as a layperson's term for describing um, any kind of pain down the lower extremity. And yeah. that really isn't uh, accurate. I mean, I ideally, we would like to let the term be defined by you know pain in the sciatic nerve distribution that is specifically uh, deriving from sciatic nerve involvement. Um, and so that's one of the, the more oh 
Okay, good. We're going to have stuff to talk Thank about. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. So how would how would you define it? Is that how you define it? Pain in the sciatic nerve distribution? I would say, yeah, pain arising. in the sciatic nerve distribution that is derived specifically from sciatic nerve involvement. Because you can have pain in the sciatic nerve distribution that's not from the sciatic nerve. So, um, all right. That's, that, so that opens up the debate about the derivation of pain. What is the cause? Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're saying, okay, so where is the sciatic nerve distribution area? Yeah, so this is going to be, you know, a, a wide area all the way from the lumbar, you know, depending on which branches we're talking about, but this could be anything from, from the lumbar region through the gluteal area, and of course, down the backside of the leg and all the way into the foot, depending on which, you know, different nerve branch that we're talking about and where it branches off of there. But in general, we're talking pain down the backside of the thigh, you know, gluteal region and down the backside of the thigh into the foot. Gluteal region, otherwise known as the butt. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, maybe some low back. Is that in there at all? Yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Most certainly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so pain in the butt and back and leg. In, and uh, that's, I mean, it, this is such, we're getting technical. We're already getting to the weeds, which is really cool. But I just want to say this topic for nomenclature reasons, but also for other philosophical reasons is really an interesting poster child of a condition because there are some amazing things we can do to help. And yet there's times that uh, it's not how we think we might help too. Mm -hmm. And you're going to explore that with us a little bit, right? We are going to, yeah, I'm going to explore that with you and I'm going to ask you about it too, but there's, you know, people come and it hurts and they just want to stop. And often we can, and even when we can't, there's amazing things we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you're saying it's pain in this region. Yeah. You're you're tying it to the sciatic nerve itself. Okay. Yeah. And you know, there are again, there are people who say I've got sciatica and basically they have, you know, pain either in their butt or down their leg and yeah. so I'm not going to say well no you don't have sciatica if if it's, you know, pointing to there may be some other sort of derivation or source of that pain. Um I would certainly clinically wouldn't negate that experience and just say, well, yeah. let's see what we That's, can do with There this, you go. You, know? you don't want to argue with them about what yeah. they're calling it. Yeah. You know, another way I've heard that talked about is that sciatica or sciatic pain is a symptom. It's not a condition per se, that it's, yeah. a, it's something that shows up as a result of something else going on. Yeah. I think and it has become a colloquial term just to mean what you said, pain in the yeah. back. But so. I think I talked, may have talked about this in, in one of our earlier episodes. I'm curious if this has ever happened. I had a situation where I was in uh, clinic work. This was back when I was in Atlanta and working at uh, Emory. And because Emory was a really prominent medical center in Georgia and the South, people yes. would come from all, especially you know, rural areas where they didn't have access to really good high quality orthopedic care. Mm. So they would come up to, to Emory. And I had this guy come in one day and he was complaining about the leader down his leg mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm sorry what the leader down his leg right the leader and like i'd never heard that term before and um so i had to have have him describe that to me and apparently this is a colloquial term in in certain you know rural rural cultures about pain down an extremity uh, yeah i don't know where the term comes from Did, have you ever heard that term before uh i've heard it in like fly fishing you got a leader Oh, but no, I uh, I don't know about the pain down the leg. What does no. it mean in fly fishing? What it's is it like leader? the thing the hook's tied to, you know, that last little bit of line there. Yeah. If I know my so, terms. I wonder or, if that has any relationship for how this <laughs> came about or was derived. But okay. Uh, anyway, I had to ask for clarification. I'm like, I'm going to have to get, you know, a little clearer on what this is. I've never heard this before. But uh, well, maybe uh, that's maybe there's something, something educational we can extract from that. It is important to ask people. Mm-hmm what they're actually experiencing and not yeah. go, just take their terms at face value and think that we know what they mean. Yeah, certainly. Really yeah. Cause dial again, down their experience. Yeah. And people might be using those terms different ways for different things. So yeah, always good for clarification purposes. So yeah. Okay. So what uh, else do you want to say about definition? Well, so um, again, just as a reminder, a brief anatomy reminder that the sciatic nerve is a big sucker. You know, if you ever, especially look at some of those, um, dissections of the sciatic nerve. It's, you know, about the size of your pinky finger. So, I mean, that's, that is one big hunk of nerve comes off of the nerve roots from L4, uh, off the lumbar plexus down all the way down to S3 off of the sacral plexus and combined fibers all joining together to, to make up that nerve. And do remember it has kind of two primary divisions, Mm. um, that sort of split usually around the knee. 
um, so those fibers can be, um, you know, sort of blended together and then eventually separating farther down in, in the lower extremity as well. So it's a fat nerve. Take yeah. a look at your, you said, I'm going to just highlight what you said. Look at your pinky finger. You got a nerve in your backside that's that big around. Yeah. And it has uh, some of the longest neurons in the body too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, interestingly, you know, as you noted here, when you talk about having some of the longest neurons, um, a lot of people aren't aware that those individual nerve cells um, that go all the way down the whole length of those nerves in our extremities are single cells all the way from like nerve root level to yeah. the termination of those nerves. So when you talk about you the digital plantar nerves in the toes, yeah. uh, those nerve cells go all the way up to the lumbar nerve roots. And to me, I think that's just incredibly fascinating. It is like a three foot long nerve in a human, yeah. Yeah. 15 foot long nerve in a giraffe. Yeah. Giraffes have a 15 foot long sciatic yeah. nerve. Yeah. So that means, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to steal your thunder at all. Hope I'm not buttoning in. That means no. they're vulnerable because they're so long and so big, they're vulnerable to certain processes that yeah. smaller, more protected nerves might not yeah. be. And, you know, elaborating on that point, when you talk about, when you mentioned the length of those nerves, we're not talking just about the length of the nerve as a whole. We're talking about the individual cells, the, the, the individual cell, nerve right? cells the, in there. The, and the reason that that is so important is nerve cells derive a lot of their function um, and, and are responsible for transmitting their own nutrient proteins inside oh the nerve cell um, through the flow of something called axoplasm. Now and so if that axoplasmic flow is impaired by, let's say, an obstruction or some kind of you know, thing that's interrupting the, the smooth pathway of that nerve somewhere along its path, Something steps on the hose. Something steps on the hose. Exactly. It's like a yeah. little tube. The nerve is like a little tube with its own axoplasm nourishing yeah. the nerve. Yeah. So once you step on that hose, then everything distal to that point is somewhat nutritionally deficient and therefore potentially sensitized and more vulnerable to other symptoms arising. That's where that whole process comes from that's referred to as the double or multiple crush phenomenon. So mm -hmm. especially when you get these very long nerves, they are highly susceptible to that kind of, uh, that kind of thing. Okay. So can I uh, put in a plug for fascia right here? Absolutely. Uh, those, those hoses, those tubes are yeah. uh, basically fascially wrapped nerves mm -hmm. or the net, you know, there's a layering system within the nerve that is the endoneurium, epineurium, perineurium that basically forms that hose-like structure. And so it's subject to all the things other fascia is, which can be healthy perfusion, carrying of uh, vasculature and lymph uh, vessels, including probably lymph flows directly within the tissue. And it can get either scarred or adhered or thick or dense or less perfusible. And that can cause, uh, probably we're thinking that can cause nerve symptoms too, just the yeah. quality, qualitative change in the fascial component of the nerve itself. Yeah. And uh, we'll expand on this uh, a bit later, but I do want to reiterate that especially some of these things that you're talking about do not show up well on high tech diagnostic studies like MRI. And so oh, yeah. it's very, very difficult to identify those through traditional means. Um, and to me, that's one of the great values of some of the things that we do as soft tissue therapists is investigating some of these things through much more thorough and comprehensive um, manual evaluations and, and, you know, looking at these things in, in functional capacity a lot more than just, you know, what's, what shows up on the MRI. Well, we'll talk about at some point, if I don't talk about it here, we'll put it in the handout about different sorts of interventions that can leverage that tube-like uh, architecture that can help that hose flow better. Now you have something in there about true sciatica and the sciatic nerve. What, what do you mean by that? I'm yeah, I was just referring here. This is basically essentially what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, true sciatica being something where there is uh, impairment or irritation of the sciatic nerve or its branches being differentiated from the, um, you know, sciatica in air quotes that is just simply pain down the backside of the leg. Oh, okay. Uh, that I see. might be okay. coming from other causes. So, because yeah. I've heard a distinction made between true sciatica and pseudo sciatica. Yeah. And I would call the pseudo sciatica those things that are not sciatic nerve derived. 
you know, but I've heard sciatica referred to piriformis syndrome, et cetera. Yeah. True sciatica being nerve root and anything, any other insult or uh, irritation to the sciatic nerve elsewhere along this pathway being yeah. pseudosciatica. Yeah. I've heard that same kind of distinction. I have to say, personally, I don't like that distinction. Why? Because the piriformis involvement, if we're talking about the sciatic nerve, which is the most common way in which the sciatic nerve is, uh, you know, impaired in that region by muscle tissue. Yeah. That's impairing the sciatic nerve, as is the nerve root or, you know, an obstruction in the, in the lumbar region. Yes. Um, and it, it seems more relevant to me to make a distinction between those things that are actually impairing the sciatic nerve from those that aren't. And that to me would be pseudoscience. That's the distinction you make. Yeah. Okay. Because it's really hard to make a distinction between, yeah. you know, okay, let's talk about, well, the sciatic nerve is irritated, you know, up here in the lumbar nerve root versus being irritated in the piriformis region. I mean, absolutely helpful to do that, but it's right. still the sciatic nerve. And well, that's, I mean, it's chiropractors call it type one or type two. Mm -hmm. I've heard it called true or pseudo, but again, the distinction there and those systems that I've heard different than what you're saying, Wendy, is that it is either nerve root or not either nerve root or, you know, peripherally nor distal down the nerve. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not even, that's, that's useful for us therapeutically because we can start to think about where, if there is a locate one location where there might be an issue, but on the other hand, um, there's limitations to that division as well. Yeah. In my class, I do a, a distinction between axial and appendicular, mm -hmm. but it's often the case that we troubleshoot both. We, it's hard to tell if it's uh, you know exactly where it is, but we can do it empirically. We can do uh, different kinds of movements and things like that to help mm -hmm. narrow down, to see what helps at least, even if we don't know the exact location. So tell me about um, that distinction between axial and appendicular. Is that just kind of like what we were talking about here too, in yeah. terms of being like in the, you know, torso spinal region versus non or something? Yeah. Axial being nerve root related. Is it the nerve roots of the set, you know, the, the feeder nerves that become the sciatic nerve? Is it right there where they exit the spinal canal that they're being either compressed or irritated or is it somewhere downstream? Yeah. That's mm -hmm. axial appendicular. Yeah. And the only reason I think I keep that distinction is because it does kind of parallel what I understand about the conventional division, but it also helps us again, start to target where we think we might start yeah. and see what happens. Right. I think yeah. that's a good distinction. I like that, you know, axial versus appendicular. And that does sort of get us thinking too, about where we're going to potentially target with, with other uh, treatment strategies and things like that. So. Great. Should we yeah. talk about how we would uh, start to narrow that down, how we might recognize. Yeah. You know, on? we, put some notes up here. And, and I, as we're talking about this, I think what I'd like to do is talk first about some of these other things that might be confused with sciatic nerve involvement. And then we okay. talk about how do we specifically recognize it? Cause it'll help about right. when we talk about some of those distinctions. So, so differential diagnosis kind of thoughts. Yeah. Great. I've got a, like a, a list of a few things that we know, and this would be sort of in that category of pseudo sciatica of things that can mimic sciatic type pain and, and produce very similar type of symptoms. So Mm -hmm. They run the gamut from myofascial trigger points and especially in the gluteal muscles. Um, we see a lot of those pain referral patterns from especially the hip abductors, gluteus medius and minimus doing that. And some of the mm -hmm. other gluteal muscles also putting that pain down the backside of the leg. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you mentioned earlier too piriformis involvement. And uh, this is one that people don't tend to make a strong distinction about, but I've also heard pretty common misconceptions about this when you talk about that whole pseudosciatica thing and that's involving the potential compression of another branch of nerve off this area called a posterior femoral cutaneous nerve mm -hmm. and um, i don't know tell me maybe if you have heard this before i've certainly heard this numerous times people saying if you've got pain going all the way down your leg into your foot, then that's a nerve root problem in the sciatic nerve. If you've got pain just down to your knee, then that's a piriformis entrapment of the sciatic nerve. Um, yeah. Uh, that's what chiropractors are taught. Yeah. And there is some good evidence. I think the trend is toward that. If it's below the knee, it's probably nerve root. There is, Bogduk said the opposite. And he was a pretty influential spinal researcher mm -hmm. who did a bunch of some of the work we're still using to understand spinal pain. By the way, spinal pain, we're going to talk to Dr. Stuart McGill in an upcoming episode. So I just got to say anything I say about the back is going to be uh, tentative. He's like Mr. Back pain. Yeah. 
Super anyway, excited about that conversation. We'll see how we'll, that wraps into what we're talking about here as well. So, yeah. Yeah. It, so the uh, basically the takeaway is there's disagreement in different disciplines. Chiropractors will say below the knee, yeah, it's, it's nerve root. Others yeah. say, no, it's if it's below the knee, it's probably not. Yeah. So who knows? And one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is that I don't agree with that classification. And I think that comes out oh. of a misunderstanding, I think, of some anatomical factors that may play into this. For example, the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve is, as its name indicates, a cutaneous nerve giving sensation to the yeah. posterior thigh, and it, it terminates around the knee. It doesn't go below the knee. If you compress the sciatic nerve with the piriformis muscle in the gluteal region, you can definitely produce lower extremity symptoms down below the knee. And I think in many of these instances where the piriformis muscle is involved, yeah. we are actually entrapping the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve and not the, not the uh, sciatic nerve. And that's why those symptoms only go down to the knee because mm -hmm. that particular nerve. And if you look at an anatomy uh, reference, and maybe we'll put a picture of this yes, in the handout. Yes, we need a picture. Um, yep. We can see how close that posterior femoral cutaneous nerve is to the sciatic nerve. It's just right next to it. And so it could easily, you know, these structures tend to get compressed against the sacrospinous ligament in, yes. the, uh, yep. in the pelvic region. And they're both very susceptible to that. So um, uh, that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm not quite sold on that whole thing of it's piriformis. If it only goes down to the, well, yeah, it might be piriformis, but it might not even be the sciatic nerve. You could be looking at PFCN entrapment there as well. PFCN. Yeah. Posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. Nice. Yeah. Well, I got to just ask how, what, how does it matter? Yeah. So from a treatment perspective, um, I, th I think that either one of these is going to drive the same treatments as far as I'm concerned, which is primarily we're going to try to target the gluteal and piriformis region. Um, it, what it tends to do, I think, is sometimes not scare people as much because when they hear about oh. sciatic problems, you know, that, yes. that carries a lot of baggage for, for people sometimes. So, well, it's uh, pretty commonly associated with disc problems. A lot of yeah. people, it's, it's a sign of disc issues and the classic PTs are taught if you get can reproduce sciatic pain, then it means under certain circumstances, there's a disc issue. Yeah. That thinking is loosening that correlation in people's mind is loosening culturally, Yeah, but still sciatic pain. Yeah. It does sound kind of bad and has lots of associations to people. Yeah, certainly. And then just a couple other things, you know, um, sometimes, uh, and again, this is not a, a real strong correlation, but there have been some indications that, Irritation of the zygopophyseal or facet joints of the spine can produce yeah. radiating pain symptoms in the gluteal and or lower extremity region as well, as can uh, sacroiliac joint dysfunction also produce some of those kinds of, uh, of symptoms. And the reason I wanted to talk about a couple of these things before we talked about um, identifying the, uh, you know, we're making some distinctions about how to identify is that because this is a uh, one of the ways in which there's more specific evaluation procedures are helpful yes. to distinguish between true neural involvement and some of these other things that might be joint related or something like that. Okay. I almost named my dog Zygo Pasavio, by the way. And then you yeah. call him Zyg instead of Zin or something. <laughs> something like that. But that basically facet joints you're saying yeah. can mimic or be similar to the sciatic kind of symptoms yeah. as well as sacroiliac joint. Mm -hmm dysfunction or sensitivity yeah yeah i should just as while we're doing the list from my side i should stick in you mentioned sacrospinous region but also sacrotuberous related uh issues you could say mm -hmm. or at least yeah. those are the places we can work that seem to make a difference yeah they're on my map of things to check mm -hmm. for sure yeah well do you use uh, you more to say about that with um no, I think the, those are the ones that I want to bring up as, you know, potential uh, confusing uh, yeah. identifications that may be mistaken for sciatic, uh, sciatic nerve involvement. And yes. we did mention, um, I think, or maybe we didn't mention, you know, in terms of nerve root involvement, there are a couple of things when this is a, a sciatic involvement at, at, the, uh, at the nerve root level, that this may yeah. occur from, you know, intervertebral disc herniations, uh, right. Other types of obstructions, spinal tumors, bone spurs, stenosis, um, those are factors. Sometimes, you know, spondylolysis or spondylolysis, um, which they're right. in the breakdown in the, in the articular structure of the vertebra itself. Those are all the, factors that may also cause nerve root involvement. Um, 
So those are all things that can put mechanical pressure on the nerve root where the nerves are exiting the spinal canal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I should add before I just ask a different question, there's also some speculation about muscles in that region that run parallel to the nerves, unnamed muscles that have been observed in dissection that seem to be responsible, maybe so speculatively, to, for retracting or stabilizing those nerves as they slide in and out of those canals. So if they're muscles, the theory goes, maybe they get bigger or get inflamed or something like that. But certainly there's fascial sleeves you know, it's the dural tube that goes around the nerve and then the perineurium around the nerve. There's different fascial sleeves there that can also be part of, if, even if it's not a bony overgrowth or a positional problem that's closing the foramen, there can be soft tissue contents in that foramen that can get bigger, mm -hmm. you could say. Either the, maybe there's muscles in there, maybe not, or fascial. Maybe the fascial can get denser or inflamed with thicker and cause a mechanical uh, compression, stepping on the hose right there, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's a debate about whether you even need compression to have the sciatic nerve symptoms. Mm -hmm. Peter Sullivan, Sullivan, et cetera, saying that actually it's a, it's a question of irritation. And often conventionally, we assume that compression equals irritation but that you can have irritation of the nerve without having compression of the nerve. And that this holds true in surgical interventions where often, well, probably manual, I know manual therapy too, often will do something that seems to relieve the direct compression on the nerve, but there's still pain there sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah. So those other things uh, that might cause irritation of the nerve other than compression, Yes. Examples being like chemical inflammation. mediators, inflammation. My favorite. Yeah. yeah my, favorite thing, my, right? uh -huh. my favorite thing. Yeah. So it could be local inflammation of some of those connective tissue structures that make up the nerve. Yeah. It could be, and there's some good evidence for this, neighboring structures like your facet joints, like spinal ligaments and things like that could be inflamed themselves. And that inflammatory process also irritates its neighbors just through the direct chemical interaction or in, in immunological interactions with the neighboring structures. Yeah. So there are things that, it, it's a shift in thinking for me too. When I started realizing that sciatic pain was a result of sensitization and maybe not always mechanical compression, that changed my therapeutic approach too. Yeah. Because I, I found this from the beginning. A lot of times I would do things that would clearly uh, help there be uh, movement or more spaciousness or different things there. And the pain would still be there sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it'd go away magically. Other times it's like we did everything and it still hurts just as much. Yeah. So that just made me start to think about pain as an independent variable. Like pain is something different than what's going on either tissue or wise or structural wise. Yeah. And there's some interesting, can I tell you a little uh, piece of trivia? Of course. I love those. This is um I'm looking at my notes here, uh, 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 which turned the page. Let me get there. Okay, yeah. This is from Tom Jessen's story. He says, 1958, Smith and Wright, they published a paper on this. They were spinal surgeons. They sewed, they wanted to tease apart the sensitivity compression thing. They did disc surgeries and they would sew in pieces of thread looped around the nerves on both sides. Mm -hmm. Have you heard about this one? I have not. So the thread was coming out of the skin. They'd leave it extending out of the incision on both sides. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, they would monitor the sensitivity of the nerve and the healing process. So they, they took away all of the compression of the nerve through the surgical process. They'd leave a little thread attached, looped around the nerve itself. And then every now and then they would very gently tug on these threads to see if the nerve was still sensitive. Mm -hmm. And they'd use the unaffected side as, as a control. So the unaffected side wouldn't produce any pain. But in many patients, for days afterwards, uh, the smallest tug on the nerve would still produce the same pain, even though all the compression was gone. Yeah. So the, their takeaway was the nerve is still sensitized, and that's the, responsible for the pain phenomenon. Yeah. But not so much the... So the hose gets stepped on, but the, whatever changes in the nerve or changes in the brain around the sensation of the nerve are what responsible for the pain. Yeah. And that can be independent of the nerve yeah. uh, compression itself. Yeah. And I think this is something we will probably explore in a little bit greater detail when we have that conversation with Stuart McGill here coming up too, because this is certainly his realm. And I've, I've heard him talk a number of times about this in terms of the necessity of teaching people about 
more optimal movement patterns that really can alleviate a lot of pain. Like, you know, when you have a certain type of thing with your back that causes, you know, sciatic pain, you know, shooting mm -hmm. down your leg or whatever, every time mm -hmm. you lean over the sink to brush your teeth. And then that just perpetuates into like, I know when I try to lean over to do something else, this is going to hurt. And that whole yeah. sensitization thing gets, gets, gets uh, really out of whack. So uh, there's a lot of things that I think, you know, we can play a part in, in terms of turning that around, but people have to remember this generally doesn't happen quickly. There's you know, oftentimes going to be a little bit more time involved with, with making it occur or making it happen. So. Well, yeah, I can't wait to hear what he says about his, you know, his sniff and his different kinds of things he does to help people uh, stabilize in his model around yeah. the nerve. But then for me, taking, teasing it apart from my goal is to help people with their pain. Of course, that's what they want too, but it doesn't always happen right away. Even if I've done the tissue part, Mm -hmm. that there's still a neurological part off and the nerve is still, or the brain is still sensitized. Yeah. And that oftentimes that takes a little more time, just time to, for the body to adjust. And then on the other hand, um, there's times when um, that doesn't seem to go away, honestly, as yeah. much as confident as I am in my treatments. And as much as I would like to say, this is an effective approach, which it is, there's times it just doesn't seem to go away. Yeah. And sometimes helping people think about it in terms of sensitivity or irritation more than a compression can be a more helpful reframe. Yeah. Can be a way to realize, you know, your nerve sensi sensitized, it's irritated. So it hurts. Mm -hmm. It may or may not be because it's compressed. We don't really know. Right. I also wanted to draw back a second to something you said a few moments ago uh -huh. um, and, and highlight this because it's something that I think a lot of people may not be aware of or may not think about a lot. You know, we talk, if you look at the traditional orthopedic literature around sciatic nerve pain, mm -hmm. um, it is strongly, strongly biased towards looking at functional uh, mechanical stresses on nerve roots, discs, and some yes. of those other major structural things. And yes. you've mentioned a few moments ago, and we have sort of learned more in recent years. And, and I think it is just still grossly underrepresented the role of a lot of these soft tissues in some of these pain complaints. And especially as we look at, you know, the degree of, of um, neural mm -hmm. supply from, you know, myofascial tissues in particular into the central nervous system, I still think they have been very underrepresented and underrecognized as contributors to various types of nociceptive overload that people experience. And uh, of course, that's of particular interest to us as, as manual therapists who work with a lot of soft tissue stuff. But, totally. It is for um, me. Yeah. Yeah. Either. I mean, whether you're thinking fascially or you're thinking neurocentrically and, you know, pain science or fascia science, whichever, or both, Yeah. there's a whole lot of different ways to uh, help or go after sciatic pain. A lot of different things that don't necessarily uh, aren't necessarily provided in other ways. Yep. Yeah. So that's, the, I mean, that said, if someone comes to me with severe intractable sciatic pain, or if, you know, there's certain tests we do, like a Lasik test or something that shows pain in certain ways, I want them to be under the care of a, uh, of another primary care physician for sure, but maybe a specialist, mm -hmm. either yep. a neurologist or physical therapist, somebody, because uh, to say, you know, there, there might be some perspectives that I use that are helpful, but it's not to say that I know things that the other people, uh, you know, that they shouldn't come to be getting conventional care as well too. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important, especially for severe or intractable pain. Yeah. And that's a very good example. I just, you know, to give another uh, example about that, like, uh, you know, let's say, you know, a person comes in with pretty severe radiating sciatic type symptoms down both yeah. lower extremities. And, yeah. you know, the, per, you know, the practitioner says, well, I think we can, you know, my teacher told me we can do some soft tissue work on this and, you know, help them out a little bit. And so Might I'll take true. them on and not refer them or whatever. Well, that, part, that no. person needs to be seen by an orthopedist because they may have a central protrusion and a cauda equina syndrome. That's, you know, something's pressing on both sides of the, uh, or mm -hmm. directly on the spinal cord. And that's why you're getting bilateral mm -hmm. symptoms. So again, that's another good example of, of why it is helpful to be able to know some of these things that are big red flags that we do want to send elsewhere. So both side pain being one of those. Another one is, yeah. I mean, we, I'll, I'll put it in the, the handout about the Lasig or straight leg test if we don't talk about it here. Yeah. But like if someone does that test, they lift their leg and the other side hurts. Yeah. That's like a red flag. That's like a go 
to jail kind of thing. You know, go yeah. to the other practitioner, check this out. Right. That's a something's going on there that's not good. Yeah. So uh that's that's something that's often called the well leg test. And and it's it's fascinating. It's about, you know, it's again helps to have a little bit more understanding of neural dynamics. But you know, if you do something on the unaffected side and it, you know, increases those symptoms, it's because of the overall neural pull. Um, you know, affecting that uh, that side where there is a potential problem. And this usually indicates something that is highly sensitized and probably needs to be seen by somebody else as well. Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that we can't do some things with people, but they should certainly, I, I agree with you in, in that situation. I'm going to refer that person out for additional evaluation as well. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, I'm, that's the, the well leg thing, but I'm, I'm talking about like, say, lifting the affected leg uh -huh. And the pain goes starts on the, on the unaffected side. Oh yeah, uh huh, yeah. So that's that can be a sign of some spondylolisthesis or some yeah. movement in there that's really that uh, needs to be under some care, some serious care there. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Agreed. So, okay, what's next? Well, um, we want to. Oh, you mentioned a couple things. You mentioned the Lasag test, also also called the straight leg raise test. That is probably one of the most common physical examination procedures that's often done for this type of thing. It's, you know, a client is, we'll put this uh, picture on the handout and describe it a little bit, client mm -hmm. supine on the treatment table, and then the, the leg is raised to see if that increases those sciatic nerve symptoms, because after about 60 degrees of hip flexion with the knee extended, you're pulling on the sciatic nerve and putting some tension on it and pulling potentially the whole neural structures against any protruding or obstructing uh, tissues or, or obstacles along the path that might, um, you know, sort of reinforce or reinvigorate those symptoms that the person is experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then we might compare that against some other things that might, for example, um, isolate the piriformis muscle and its potential involvement. There's a couple different tests for the piriformis involvement let's, as well. Let's go. Let's talk about those. But let's go yeah. back to the. You say Lasag, I say Lasig, mm -hmm. uh, or the straight leg raise test. Super commonly used in orthopedic examinations. Yeah. Really well researched. Done with all the different parameters. Pretty high degree of both uh, sensitivity and specificity. Yeah. And you said pulls on the nerve root. Yeah, it also can pull on the dural tube, yep. for example. Yeah. And there's some cool work that David Butler republished in the 90s, of David Butler of the NOE group, pain science group, from Brieg 78, just showing Brieg went and sewed little markers onto the static nerve roots and raised the leg. And you could see those markers coming in and out like an inch or more out of the yeah. nerve exits. So and actually, then to, you're actually sliding nerves just by listing the legs, in other words. Yeah, exactly. And also back to what you said a moment ago, too, about the whole dural tube involvement, the very last step of that test yes. okay. involving, you know, head and cervical, uh, cervical and, and head flexion. Flexion, yep. Pulling the upper end of the whole dural tube and, you know, further sensitizing those maneuvers. And again, David Butler certainly has done some marvelous work on that. Michael Shacklock is another who's done some some excellent illustrations stuff, yeah. of those uh, neurodynamic tests there. So those are very good resources to, to learn a little bit more about that stuff. So um, I use, I use those a lot with clients to help me get a sense, not to tell them whether or not they have this or that, but to help me as a practitioner start to put it together, a working hypothesis about where I'll start. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If that straight leg raise test shows some sciatic pain, it reproduces their pain, then I am thinking nerve roots. Mm -hmm. If they drop their head forward, or they flex their spine. I'm also thinking nerve roots, but probably, you know, like you said, it pulling from above. Yeah. If it doesn't reproduce their pain, then I'll go on to the piriformis test that you were starting to talk about. Yeah. And another thing that I find value in doing some of these procedures is that, for example, if you do that straight leg raise test and you find it highly sensitized, we can use this as a means of saying, look, you know, if you're going to sit down and tie your shoes, bend your knee, don't do it with uh, your knee out in front of you here and straighten down because every movement that you do that lights that sciatic nerve up further sensitizes the system. So we can use that as as movement coaching for encouraging people to you know, do things that don't irritate those structures further. Cause now we're, we're zoning in and, and identifying what are the problematic positions and or movements that really you know, cause them further, further challenge. I, I, yeah, I like it. I, I might have a little different spin on it. Mm -hmm. I'll tell them to like play with the edge of it. Yeah. We want to, we do want in this model, we do want to light it up a tiny bit. 
in a yeah. controlled way and in a dosed way. So like bend over, like you're going to tie your shoes and find the edge of that place that sensation starts and now back off mm -hmm. and now wiggle your toes Yeah. and now breathe. And now, you know, think of a joke or whatever, you know, do something that just helps shift the context around that. Yeah. So playing around the edges of the thresholds where that pain starts. Yeah. Rather than just like a straight, don't do that, avoid that, which it could be, you know, alarming or make people feel more protective or more fragile over time too. Yeah. And that's a really good point. I would like to clarify to what, you know, in, in saying that, that my encouragement would be to them is that um, at different stages, different things are going to be appropriate. When it's in okay. a really bad flared up stage, that's where I'm yeah. going to tell them don't do that. Right. As they begin don't to get keep... a little bit more movement, I'm going to do right. exactly what you said. It's just tell them to push the envelope a little bit, but we don't want to do it when it's really in that flared up stage because that will a lot of times increase the neural sensitivity. Well, basic inflammatory, basic yeah. inflammation approaches, meaning if it's inflamed, we treat it carefully. Yeah. And this isn't the place, no, like you said, to stimulate or to increase uh, you know, willy-nilly, at least the inflammation. We want to calm it. We want to increase the ra adaptive range around it. Yeah. And some of that's through just rest and avoiding, uh, you know, uh, irritants, mm -hmm. movements that irritate. And some of that can be recontextualizing or perfusion or hydration, different things like that. Yeah. And one of the other, uh, I want to talk about for just a second, go draw back to our discussion of using these procedures from an evaluation standpoint. I oh, also yeah. find these really valuable as a marker of progress for people. Mm. So, you know, when you set a baseline at the outset, like they only get their, their leg up to, you know, about 45 degrees of, uh, or less of, of, you know, hip flexion until that yeah. really just lights up. And then six weeks down the line, we're working and let's take a look at this again and see where we are. And all of a sudden they realize, oh, wow, I can get farther than I did before. That's a nice That's objective measure of improvement that really stimulates positive thought and positive momentum about making progress in there. Well, it, it, it gives another marker besides just it hurts too. Yeah. Because it, it hurts is hard to track over time. We don't, I mean, I do everything I can to avoid that being my only measure of success because it's, it's amazing as we can be about helping people with pain. If that's our only yardstick, it's tough. Mm -hmm. So things yeah. like, can I, can I move more? Can I yeah. move before it hurts? Can I move in different ways? You know, in spite of the hurt, all those kinds of things are also great alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So there's, and that test, you know, you're talking about treatment. It's, there's so many ways you can use that test, raising the straight leg or dropping the head as a way to therapeutically help the nerve too. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, I got a couple in my course from Greg Lehman, he kindly gave me the illustrations about his versions of that. But if you just YouTube like a uh, sciatic slider or slump slider or sciatic tensioner, you'll see like dozens of variations. There's people like juggling and doing this exercise. There's people like pedaling a bicycle and doing this exercise. Yeah. Lots of ways that to adapt that test into a therapeutic intervention as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and you're going to explore some more treatment strategies with us here on some of those things as well. Some of, Well, some yeah, things. that, that was just, those are, there's a lot that are based right around that test. Yeah. We can use the sensitivity they find to mm -hmm. shift the, the thresholds or to hydrate the nerve or to increase mobility, whatever the goal is. Yeah. But yeah. And there's more, there's manual manipulations as well. So yeah, I'll put in the handout at least. Is there, so uh, is there anything, cause I know you're, you're very well immersed in and, and really well versed in these uh, understandings of, of neuroinflammation issues. Is there anything that we can do that will lessen impact or decrease the neuroinflammation that may be going on from irritated neural structures in this, in this. That's area. such a good question. Is there yeah. anything we can do to lessen the impact or decrease the bother or the pain of neural inflammation? There is so much we can do. Mm -hmm. There's not a magic muscle we massage and it all goes away often. Sometimes yeah. there is, but there's uh, I'll put it in the handout. There's like at least six different ways to work with neural inflammation. And we've already named or implied a couple of them. One is simply reframing it mm -hmm. from being your damaged to being your protective. I mean, these are, you know, these aren't damage signals. These are these are protective signals, for example, helping people think about their pain in different ways. Yeah. It can be that so that's subtle to the there are direct mobilizations we can do that help uh change perfusion, change the function of that hose in a way 
that probably helps resolve things immunologically or inflammatorily, you know, where the inflammatory processes get a cycle through and resolve as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like six other things in between or four other things in between those two, whatever. Nice. Yeah. So, and you'll include that stuff in the, uh, yep. in the handout yep. for us. So I'll put yeah. those, the list of six in there and I'll, it'll spur some thinking. Yeah. Do you, so you mentioned piriformis tests. Yeah. So there's a few uh, other tests that we can do um, for the piriformis muscle that are sort of designed to be identifying piriformis syndrome. Again, entrapment of sciatic nerve involvement that might occur in this region. So they primarily target the piriformis muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this can get into a, a whole nother um, can of worms of something that we may well delve into in another discussion some other day. But you know, a lot of people only talk about the, the That's sciatic nerve. That's never scared us before. Come on. <laughs> uh, a lot of people talk about the sciatic nerve being compressed or irritated by the piriformis muscle. And that is certainly a potential problem, but there's also a number of other muscles in this region that uh, can also be impacted and affected that might show up uh, with some involvement when you do that. You know, there's the superior gluteal nerve. There's the inferior gluteal nerve, the yes. posterior femoral cutaneous that we mentioned earlier, pudendal yes. nerve. Yes. Uh, lots of them in there might show up being somewhat symptomatic when you do some of these tests that, that really kind of zero in on the piriformis muscle, especially the, the sideline uh, piriformis test, which is also called the FAIR test sometimes. F-A-I-R is an acronym for flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. Um, and nice. then the seated piriformis test, which sort of contracts the piriformis muscle as opposed to stretching it. Um, now, I do one where you pull the knee to the chest and pull it across the midline. Yeah. Is that... One of those? That's going to be the pretty much same position yeah. as the uh, f- the fair test, the, the flexion, okay. adduction, internal rotation. And, yep. uh, you know, I, there's some fascinating things about piriformis anatomy and kinesiology that, again, this may be going down a completely different rabbit hole, but yeah, I got stumped by this one day. This was m- many years ago and looking at this because I was like, if you look at that piriformis stretching position, like you mentioned there, that particular position or the one that's used in the, in the fair test, the traditional uh, mm-hmm. fair or sideline piriformis test, you notice that the piriformis is um, internally rotated, excuse me, and oftentimes laterally rotated in that stretching position. You sort of bring that. The piriformis itself is rotated or, I mean, or the, the femur? The hip, the, hip, the, the femur hip, is the laterally femur. rotated. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So you bring the femur up in that sort of position, cross it across the body and sort of laterally yep. rotate the femur. Yep. And uh, I got stumped by that one day thinking like, wait a minute, the piriformis uh-huh. is a lateral rotator of the hip. Right. Why are we stretching the piriformis if we put the hip into lateral rotation? That doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Um, and then uh, a number of years later, stumbled across this, I think in Donald Newman's kinesiology book, a description of the piriformis's action and noted that it changes action after about 60 degrees of hip flexion because of its attachment point and becomes an internal rotator and nice. then therefore stretches in external rotation as you bring that hip up into the position that you're talking about. Yeah, I can just feel it sitting here talking to you. If I bring yeah. my hip up and just do that kind of pigeon kind of pose external rotation that's clearly stretching my piriformis but yeah that i never put those two together that that's like what is that doing stretching that quote lateral rotator even right with lateral rotation in lateral rotation yeah so so you know one of those uh well, a couple of those piriformis tests like the the sideline piriformis test uh focuses on stretching the piriformis muscle to see if it is pulling it taut and compressing uh-huh. those nerves. there's another test where you're basically seated and doing a resisted bilateral hip abduction where you're trying to abduct your hips against resistance from a seated position. And that's like contracting. with a belt or something or a band Basically, you know, the or... way we do is the client is sitting on the edge of the treatment table and you place your hands on okay. each side of resisted, the outside yep. of their knees and mm-hmm. tell them to push their knees away from each other. And you yep. offer resistance to that. Interesting. Uh, that's cool. called the pace abduction test. And it's basically contracting the piriformis muscle. Yep. But you know, uh, sometimes I like or prefer to use some uh, alternative positions for some of these because you're sitting on your piriformis at that time as well. Uh Uh And so, you know, if you really want to determine 
So remove your uh, wallet sure, from your pocket. Yeah, remove your wallet. Give it to your therapist, you know, to hold, and they'll <laughs> decrease the size of the wallet. So it's not that wallet your, syndrome. We know how to reduce that. That's right. So it's not compressing your piriformis muscle. Uh, so, but that could be done in a supine position too, where you just have them, you know, you know, bring the hips into a flex position, and then try to to abduct them away from each other. So. Yeah, those are a couple of variations, but just do remember, and we talked about this in one of our previous episodes about the accuracy of some of these special orthopedic tests, that this is not rocket science. And in particular, I do not advocate people use these tests in isolation without a very detailed history, you know, much more thorough physical examination, very detailed palpatory examination, and all these other things that will contribute valuable information in there. Well, you're given that disclaimer because they're, they give the illusion of like, oh, I got it. I know what it is now. Yeah. And in isolation, we don't. It might yeah. be at best a working hypothesis or a place to start. Mm-hmm. But, and they're, they're, they're really fun. I love those tests, you know, but it's their reliability in terms of being able to check out and confirm the diagnosis in other ways is varied, super yeah. varied. Yeah. Mixed. It's mixed. And it's just great to remember that, that yeah. they're fun for hypotheses, but, uh, don't take them literally. No, and they're in my experience, um, and I'm, this is something I'm going to try to probe probably a little bit more with with uh, Stuart McGill when we talk to him. Is that I I think in many instances those tests are used as a substitute for a detailed and thorough physical examination, mm-hmm. um, and sure. I don't like that. I think that's short circuiting it, and it's it's really decreasing the accuracy of what we can potentially do with people. So it's true. It's it's so hard to teach the big picture or especially that to get people interested in the big picture. I mean, if I put an ad out there for a quick test that shows you where to work, I was going to get some results. If I put an ad out there that says detailed clinical examination, long conversation with your client, sign right up. It's going to be a little less. Learn how uh, to think critically. There you You go. Not a big seller. You know, zero enrollments for that one. That's it. That's it. You and me, I'll come. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, anyway, uh, so piriformis, uh, yeah, you get you mentioned some tests tests that are you know probably stretch the piriformis or tension it in ways that if they yeah. light up the pain can give us a clue that that might be involved. Yeah, you know this one that, that some people say thirty percent of people have an alternative pathway for their sciatic nerve. Yeah, it's something that we didn't address at all, and uh, that one when I learned that just was. Yeah quite uh, fascinating and both just stumped me when you look at those anatomical variations i think like there's a good bunch of people that have their sciatic nerve going right through the middle of that muscle why isn't that thing just screaming in pain all the time you know it's it's pretty amazing yeah when i when i learned this i mean this is like 1980 something early 80s we were learning sciatica was either because of the nerve roots or because of the piriformis Mm -hmm. and in some people the piriformis went around the nerve which it does in a certain number of people and that that caused sciatic pain well, you might, you know, you might know this too, but the, the um, imaging studies of that situation sh- don't show a higher incidence of sciatic pain in that population. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's not a structural problem. And some people have sciatic pain there, whether it goes through or around or between yeah. the nerve, but it's not necessarily a statistical correlation all we have to worry about. Yeah. And uh, it it reminds us too that despite the fact of what we see in many anatomy books, there's lots of places throughout the body where nerves go right through the middle of a muscle, yeah, and don't have pain. Um, and to me, that continues yep. to be sort of mind-boggling. You know, with all the things that we see that produce neural pain from even relatively low levels of compression over a long period of time, the fact mm-hmm. that you have so many of these nerves going right through the middle of a muscle that don't produce pain is is interesting. So, well, it just says to me that structure and shape is just one factor in yep. pain and sensitivity mm-hmm. and maybe not always the main factor even. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. So okay, what so else some, you got on, uh, on t- well, treatment things here? Well, yeah, I was going to say um, there are some other places too in the hip, in the glute and posterior glute region where that seems to be helpful to work. And maybe it's because they do cause entrapment, like between the, of the uh, quadratus femoris, you know, that's another place. It's like a little platform there that the sciatic nerve can sit in. Mm-hmm. And if it's, it seems to be something that can irritate or squeeze perhaps the nerve there. So that's something I think about. It's a little lower down on the femoral 
shaft than the piriformis attachments per se. And especially, this is one that I just found in my practice because I, I used to get quite a bit of sciatica. So, you know, working on myself there, getting people to work on me and then starting to do it on my clients, just working the intermuscular septum in the back of the legs between the, between the hamstrings and the adductors mm-hmm. gave me a lot of relief. And conventional thinking would say, well, okay, you're just working on the place it hurts and maybe the entrapment or irritation is up in the spine. That's probably true sometimes. But there, there's an Italian paper, and I'll see if I can find, dig up the reference, that actually found a bunch of entrapments in the back of the leg in people that whose pain got better when they addressed those locally. Yeah. And that's definitely been my experience, you know, to sometimes just work in the back of the leg where it hurts. Yeah. We, even if it is sciatic or, you know, or pseudosciatic or whatever, seems to make quite a bit of difference. Yeah. There was a paper I came across a number of years ago that found a pretty high correlation between um, hamstring strains or prior hamstring strains yeah. and adverse neural tension in the sciatic nerve where there you go. the healing hamstring strain had scar tissue tethering mm-hmm. the nerve and impacting its mobility and therefore leading to uh, increases in sciatic nerve involvement. And also just Absolutely. as a note, this is a, a one of the potential causes for recurrent hamstring strains is the fact that you you know, have irritation of that sciatic nerve, possibly after a strain and, and scar tissue, maybe binding that nerve, preventing its mobility. And then that whole area becomes sensitized and the hamstrings become even more, you know, hypertonic and potentially prone to, to, you know, stress damage or, or, or strain from, from, uh, you know, muscle strain over long periods of time, because they're already hyperton- uh, hypertonic and over-contracted. In- interesting. Or density of that tendinous uh, area or the uh, intramuscular septum where the sciatic nerve runs, it runs in a big chunk of fascia right down the middle of the back of your leg. And again, if you have a hamstring strain or something that that scarring could just change the yeah. sliding ability of that nerve through that dense connective tissue. Yeah. Okay. So do you think, just in terms of things to mention, do you think that the nerve root uh, related sciatica is more common or sciatica related to somewhere else down the, down the nerve, what I'm calling appendicular nerve. What's your guess or hunch about that? Um, I probably, if I had to guess, I would guess that it's probably more common with other factors other than nerve root involvement. And again, I don't have good data to back that up, but just the very fact that we've got so many other things that may produce that in, in creating the sort of what you call appendicular sciatic involvement um, compared to just nerve root uh, alone. Um, That's, yeah. Make me uh-huh. play in that direction, I think. That's the direction I guess too. I'm still guessing. And I've, I've actually dug into that question, which is more common, appendicular or, or axial sciatica? And I found studies that point to both. Yeah. I have. For a lot of t- a lot of uh, disciplines, it's assumed that sciatic pain means nerve root and equate that even with disc involvement. Yeah. And there's some studies showing that that is a really predominant cause of people's sciatic pain. But there's others that say maybe it's two to one and the other way that most uh, two, you know, two times as much peripheral yeah. sciatic neurosensitization is nerve root sensitization. I think in my practice though, if just the people that I have walking in, if I have walk, have had walking in over the years, my guess is it's a lot more peripheral than axial. Yeah. Maybe if I was in like a spinal clinic or something, it might be different, for example. Well, I think this also comes back to how is that being evaluated? Because I think uh, a lot of the methods of, of naming this and evaluating this are incomplete um, okay. because they're not doing... Um, in, in many instances, as thorough of an evaluation investigation. For example, you know, we've known for a long time that um, disc herniations exist in many people asymptomatically. And so let's say, you know, part oh, yeah. of your, your study group there has sciatic type pain and they get an imaging study and they find a disc herniation at L4, L5 or something like that and make then the jump, okay, then this person has nerve root involvement because they have a herniated disc at that level. But yeah, we do know that people can have those disc herniations that don't produce pain. So that's not necessarily the indicator all the time. At age 50, 80% of us have measurable disc degeneration. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Not 80% of us, 80% of asymptomatic 50 year olds. Yeah. Just the people that don't have pain, 80% of those have disc degeneration. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. And I think that that skews a lot of the statistics of frequency of these kinds of things, because 
Uh, I do think a lot of them have been put in the in the bucket of of nerve root generated pain. And that's mm-hmm. also, as we noted too, and, and Gordon Waddell speaks about this a lot in his um, book, The Back Pain Revolution, about the dynasty of the disc, you know, and yeah. how that led to so many decades of extensive back surgery, which was probably unnecessary for most of those people. Yeah. Did he come up with that term, do you think? I've heard that the talked about. I I, yeah, I think I, I even know. wrote about that a little bit in my book. Yeah, but that's yeah, I don't know if he, he kind of coined that term, but that's where I, I know that's where I encountered it from him. So and that age seems to have be passed, but uh, it's still maybe they estimate four percent of back pain is disc related. That's the more, yeah, it's still a guess at this point. Yeah. Here's another one: piriformis syndrome six times more frequent in women than in men. Oh, no, I didn't know that. One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, piriformis syndrome, uh, but lumbar disc issues are twice as common in men. Hmm. than women yeah so there's some gender differences there too that I where we do might wonder on rationale for that that's interesting well rationale yeah hmm. uh it is also occupation related like truck drivers have 10 times the incidence of mm-hmm. disc related pain than yeah. general population yeah so it might be occupations or activities who knows yeah yeah, yeah certainly those uh long long-term compressive loads in certain types of seats and things like that um you know we probably find that a fair amount in in certain number of the sedentary office workers as well sitting in poor chairs and and things like that because we know a lot of those positions do increase compressive loads on the lumbar spine inappropriately in many instances yep Mm -hmm. that's great it's most common in people 40 to 60 years of age meaning after 60 it gets less common oh you and i are over the hump that's right (laughs) we're on the we're on the improving side of that curve Oh, good. One thing's getting better. Yeah. (laughs) Experienced by 40% of all people Uh sometime in their life with up to 5% of the population having static symptoms at any given time. It is, here's an important point, neuropathic rather than nociceptive, meaning it's, you know, uh, an irritated nerve as opposed to other tissue generating Mm -hmm. a nociceptive or nociceptive signal. Yeah. That's it. In terms of like the facts, in terms of treatments or things that we talked about, all the different variations of the sliders, mm-hmm. those are so useful yeah. to hydrate the nerves. The evidence is mixed. There's some good studies that show that a big improvement of people that do sliders. And I'll put one of those in particular, an exercise that was very carefully compared to some other sliders and seemed to have a big uh, level of, you know, higher level of, of effectiveness. But overall, sliders help some people a lot. Other people, they don't seem to help much. Can you give us just a brief oh, kind yeah. of definition of sliders of slider. for people who uh, aren't aware Well, of that, that straight leg yeah. test is a slider. You mm-hmm. raise the straight leg and it slides the nerve through the nerve root. Mm-hmm. And that uh, is thought to maybe hydrate the nerve. Maybe it frees it mechanically. So there's more mobility there. Maybe yeah. it changes the sensation. So it normalizes sensitivity in a way. Mm-hmm. Maybe it had other effects, descending modulation, things like that. But it's something that slides the nerve in the surrounding tissues. Yeah. Okay. And then there's variations with the head, with the bent knee, with the ankle, with the angles of the hip, all kinds of things there. With the juggling, the bike riding I mentioned, et cetera, that basically can get that nerve sliding. Yeah. And uh, Or tensioning is the other thing that, you know, is the Shatlock, uh, uh, para, you know, the... Uh, dichotomy between the two are you tensioning it or are you sliding it yeah. are you pulling it from both ends or are you pulling one end at a time yeah mm-hmm. with the both ends like dropping your head and straightening your knee being a tensioner mm-hmm. which is can be more aggravating that's where you you were saying like this you know let's not push this thing that's hurting yeah but like alternating you know drop your head as you bend your knee straighten mm-hmm. your knee as you raise your head yeah that basically slides that whole nerve track uh, caudally and cranially mm-hmm. in a way that can be relieving or calming. Yeah. So yeah, I'll put those in there, a couple of pictures of that. And mm-hmm. I would just put a plug in here too for why it is uh, helpful to understand some of these facets of neural mechanics, because that may help you choose which one of these approaches you think is going to be most beneficial to somebody. Are they going to, at this stage of their game, benefit yeah. more from a tensioner versus uh, a slider or what's going to be most helpful for them you know, where they are at this particular point? Because there's, there really isn't a, a, a blanket recipe and routine no. that you say, okay, neural people with That's neural right. problems get this. You know? That's right. Yeah. Well, this is, especially since it's a problem that people experience 
uh, chronically. It seems to go on for many people over time. Yeah. It's also super important to get people to track the results of what they try. Yeah. I think of the guy as one of my, you talked about your leader client. This was a guy who rode his Harley to his sessions. And it was a couple of sessions before I got him comfortable enough even to take off his rodeo belt. I mean, if, I mean, maybe we need to explain a rodeo belt if you're not in the West here. Mm -hmm. Rodeo belt's like a big fat leather belt with a gigantic belt buckle in front. About the size of a manhole cover. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so yeah, forget taking off his blue jeans. He wasn't going to do that. But I got him to take off his boots, take off his rodeo belt at some point. And he had mm -hmm. such painful sciatica that it was you know, quite a challenge to work with. Yeah. I got it calmed down in a great way and sent him home. It did seem to be pretty piriformis related. Mm -hmm. I sent him home with a tennis ball and showed him a couple of moves just to lie on the tennis ball and move his leg around. And it's going to really help. So he came back a couple of times later flared up because he'd fallen asleep on the tennis ball oh, you know no. it, was, it felt so good that he just yeah. kind of overdid it mm -hmm. and so that's such an important i learned such an important lesson there that it's all about dosing and it's yeah. all about doing a little bit and seeing how it responds yep yeah and uh, once it's flared up you know it's harder it's harder yeah. you got to yeah. give it time and you got to you know keep moving a little bit but you don't want to keep poking the poking the dragon or whatever exactly it is, you know? yeah yeah yeah, poking the bear. Poking the bear. Yep. All right. Um, anything else that we need to touch on? Oh, I got so much. Yeah. I got so much. But that, yeah. I think that we covered the bases there. We covered the yeah. main points I want to make. And the rest is just more technical stuff that's easier to see than to talk about. So I'll put a couple of pictures in the handout. And then, yeah, maybe people will come to the training too or check out one of the other things. Do you have... You mentioned like uh, some understanding neurodynamics. Do you have anything in your repertory classes that... Yeah, we we definitely explore those things in our uh, both our cervical, lumbar, and pelvis classes. All three of those uh, courses, because of the the role of of these tissues, we explore some of the neurodynamic testing, both from the evaluation and treatment standpoint as well. So, yeah, great. Yeah, we'll put some links in there to your site, etc. But maybe this this is a good time for our rollout for our closing sponsor. Yes, indeed. And who is that today? Well, uh, in addition to me, since I'm kind of sponsoring this episode with our sciatica, that's right. Yeah. Let me do that plug first. <laughs> the sciatica uh, live stream course, August 12th, 2022, or later by recording, if you're listening to this later. Mm -hmm. And if you're a listener to this podcast, which if you've made it this far, you can you qualify. You can save 15% by entering thinking at checkout at advanced-trainings.com. Now, our other sponsor, our rollout sponsor is uh, Handspring and... When I was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write, I was fortunate enough to have ended up with two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring, which at the time was a small publisher in Scotland run by just four people who love great books and who love our field. To this day, I'm glad I chose to go with Handspring as not only did they help me to make the books I wanted to share, the Advanced Malfascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And Handspring recently joined with Jessica Kingsley Publishers, Integrative Health Singing Dragon Imprint, where their amazing impact continues. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check their list of titles and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. So thanks again so much, Handspring, for continually su uh, supporting the Thinking Practitioner podcast. And we do want to say a thank you to all of our sponsors and, of course, also to you, the listeners. We appreciate you hanging out with us and hope we've uh, shed some light on some interesting things for you. As a reminder, you can stop by our sites for uh, show notes. And this one, we do have a handout available, and we'll put that at the bottom of the show notes where that handout is available. So um, that'll be coming off a Till site, I believe. So thank you for that, Till. Um, you can find other uh, information on our show from uh, our websites. Mine is academyofclinicalmassage.com until people can find you where? Advanced-trainings.com. If there are questions or things you want to hear us talk about here or feedback you have for us, quibbles, complaints, or spontaneous remissions, anything else you want to tell us about, email us at info at the thinking practitioner or look for us on social media just under my name our names my name is till luca whitney and i will be also found on social media under my name whitney low and if you will 
uh, take a moment, if you can, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does help other people find the show, and that mm-hmm. helps encourage us to keep at it here for a while. You can also hear us over on other platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. So please do share the word and tell a friend. And thank you again so much for listening, and we will see you again here shortly.